there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. We've called this press conference to share an important update in the disappearance of Cadet Richard Colvin Cox. As of today, March 14, 1950, it has been exactly two months since Cadet Cox went missing from West Point. And without a body or any evidence of foul play in our extensive search for Cadet Cox, it is my solemn regret to announce that the Academy will be forced to consider him a deserter. He will be officially dropped from our enrollment. Richard Colvin Cox was a promising West Point cadet who left the Academy for a dinner with a friend on January 14, 1950, and never returned. This was a case that perplexed West Point officials, local police, and FBI agents alike. After two months of searching for Richard Cox, they'd received an overwhelming outpouring of tips, but none that led to any concrete leads. Officials hadn't even discovered any trace of Cox's body. But after two months, FBI officials began to wonder if this might be a clue in and of itself. Could it be that there wasn't a body to be found? Was it possible that Cox disappeared of his own volition? If so, this would mean that Cox had fooled his friends, his family, his fiance, and even the United States government. It would mean that Cox was a deserter, a traitor to West Point and the United States of America alike. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on Richard Colvin Cox, a West Point cadet who met a friend for dinner on a dreary evening in January of 1950 and never returned. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. On January 14, 1950, Cadet Richard Cox signed out of West Point to meet a friend for dinner and was never seen again. Well, this was particularly strange because Richard Cox was known to be a rule follower and an all-around dedicated military cadet. Things got even stranger when police discovered that Cox wasn't very well acquainted with his dinner companion at all. They'd served together in the Army in Germany, but apparently... Cox didn't really know or even like the guy. Cox had been oddly vague and dodgy about this companion, even failing to divulge his name to his closest friends. 
One cadet thought he'd heard the man refer to himself as George, but that was really all that officials had to go on. So, in March of 1950, officials were looking for a man named George, as well as for Cox's body. But so far, neither of these things had turned up. In light of the lack of evidence of foul play, police began to theorize that George could have convinced Cox to desert West Point. Unfortunately, this took officials back to square one. If they wanted to find Cox, dead or alive, they'd have to locate George. But finding George off of a vague description had proved problematic, until investigators Joseph Cavanaugh and Murray Kaplan got a call with a promising tip from Cox's best friend. Hi, Kaplan. Bud Groner here. Listen, I got the most recent batch of photos you sent me of Cox's platoon in Germany, and one guy did strike me as familiar. His name is David Myron Westerfeld. And I think he might be your George. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Westervelt matches the physical description to a T. He's around 5'11", 6 feet tall, brown hair, thin guy, and a neat dresser. He was a few years older than us. He was friends with Richard then? Actually, the opposite. Westervelt was a questionable sort of guy. We didn't like him one bit. Police were encouraged by Bud Groner's tip about David Westervelt. And they got even more excited when they ran a background check on the guy. He'd apparently been arrested in 1943 at age 17, when the FBI caught him transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. Admittedly, we all make mistakes when we're 17, but the arrest was certainly more significant than Cox's record, which was squeaky clean. Kavanaugh wasted no time in paying a visit to Westervelt's home in Bergenfield, New Jersey about a 40-minute drive from West Point University's campus. Are you aware that Richard Cox is missing? I heard that on the news. I lost touch with him after Germany, but we were never really close to begin with. I see. Do you remember what you were doing on the evening of January 14th this year? What are you getting at? Just due diligence. We're asking everyone we speak with. I was at a wheelchair basketball game in Teaneck, New Jersey. Can anyone back you up on that? As a matter of fact, yes. I was there with my wife, my aunt, and my uncle. I think I even saved a program from that evening. Uh, let, me, let me see if I can find it. Ah, oh, here we go. This kept me occupied from around 7.30 until about 12.30 that evening. Kavanaugh and Kaplan found it suspicious that Westervelt had conveniently saved the program from his basketball game especially for an entire two months after the event. The two investigators cross-checked David Westervelt's alibi with his family. They found that he was indeed at the wheelchair basketball game on the evening of January 14th. However, while speaking with Westervelt's aunt and uncle, Kavanaugh learned something interesting. Westervelt was supposed to meet his uncle and aunt for dinner before the game, but the dinner had been canceled at the last minute. Instead, Westervelt's aunt and uncle picked him and his wife up at their house around 7.30 p.m. for an 8 p.m. game. If Westervelt wasn't accounted for until 7.30 p.m., then his alibi wasn't necessarily foolproof. Westervelt's New Jersey home was a 40-minute drive from West Point, and Cox signed out to meet his visitor at 5.45 p.m. So, technically, Westervelt could have had time to meet Cox, either kill him or hide him, and then been home in time for his 8 p.m. basketball game. 
If Westervelt did meet Cox at 545, it certainly would have explained why Westervelt canceled his dinner plans. Of course, this dinner could have been canceled for any number of reasons, so this evidence was circumstantial at best. Hoping to gather more information, investigators asked Westervelt to submit to a polygraph test, just in case. Westervelt agreed to the polygraph, but when he took it, the results were deemed inconclusive due to certain mannerisms. Unfortunately, this made the polygraph unreliable. Strangely, investigators chose not to pursue their Westervelt theory any further. Though the Westervelt theory seemed to be a dead end, police still held out hope that Cox might still be alive, even when his family and loved ones were coming to terms with the idea that Cox was dead. Betty? Oh my goodness, Nancy Cox, is that you? Fancy running into you downtown. I hope you know you still feel like family, even though you and Dick never formally tied the knot. I feel the same about you, and it's nice to see a friendly face. How are you holding up? I'm okay, I guess. This week was especially difficult. Dick and I had talked over Christmas about meeting when he had time off. We were supposed to meet last Sunday at 3 p.m. My goodness. We hadn't formalized a location or anything, but I guess I'd been holding out hope that if he was alive, he would have found a way to reach out to me, somehow. (laughs) While investigators, family, and friends speculated as to what could have happened to Cox, publicity regarding the mysterious case continued to grow. By mid-March, Cox's disappearance had reached the desk of the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. On March 22, 1950, Hoover sent an urgent telegraph to the FBI investigators in charge of Cox's case in New York and Cleveland. The final sentence of the telegraph read, This case must be given expeditious and continuous attention. Bureau should be advised by teletype of all pertinent developments. Signed, Hoover. And though investigators were trying to piece together evidence to support the theory that Cox had deserted West Point, more tips continued to pour in that suggested that Cox's disappearance might have involved foul play. One such tip came in the form of an anonymous call to a Newburgh newspaper. Newburgh Daily. I'm calling because I was in Germany with Richard Cox. I happen to know that Cox witnessed a murder while he was over there. He even testified against the killer. The Richard Cox from West Point? Better let me get a pen. All right, go ahead. To be clear, the person he testified against wasn't the murderer. He was just complicit in the murder. When the guy got sentenced, he only got two years in prison. Just got out a few months back. If what you're saying is true, well, buddy, this might be the biggest story in the country. Not to be pedantic, but the trial happened in Germany. So biggest story in the world. This tip opened doors into the possibility that the straight-laced Richard Cox was involved in some sort of foul play. Kavanaugh and Kaplan had army officials comb through records of trials in Germany to try to find any indication of Cox's testimony and who he might have testified against. But army officials came up empty-handed. They weren't even able to find any records that the trial happened at all. And when Kavanaugh and Kaplan called Cox's mother, Minnie, to ask her about the trial, they received a similarly confused response. Minnie Cox had never heard Cox mention any such trial. As promising as it had seemed, 
it appeared this call was just another dead end. Hope was dwindling. Finding out just who it was that was involved in Cox's disappearance seemed to be an impossible task. But as the 1950 winter turned into spring and the snow began to melt in upstate New York, the search for Cox's body took on new life. A renewed, exhaustive search was made on the West Point grounds and its surrounding lands. But it was several accidental discoveries revealed by the receding snow that truly revitalized the case. And when a ragged hat turned up near campus, a hat that bore the insignia of the United States Military Academy, police dared to hope that perhaps the real search for Richard Colvin Cox had finally begun. Coming up, we'll dive deeper into this find and several more promising leads. And now, back to the story. In early April 1950, as snow started to melt in West Point, previously hidden clues towards the disappearance of Richard Cox were finally being uncovered. How do those telephone lines look? Uh, This one looks fine. Snowfall doesn't seem to have left any lasting effects. Other than making it dreary and miserable out here, that is. They say, say, what's that? It looks like a shirt. Or maybe, is it a hat? Oh yeah, it is a hat. I can see the bill of it right over there. Check out the insignia. It looks like it says something. Um, it looks like a C, and then an A. Oh, hey, I got it. Cadet USMA. Two telephone company employees in upstate New York turned the hat in to New York police. The cap had a chin strap, small brass buttons, and the previously described insignia, indicating that the cap belonged to a West Point cadet. Believing that this could be a huge break in their case, police wasted no time in shipping the hat off to an FBI lab in Washington for further analysis. The hair samples found inside the hat had been damaged from their long-term exposure to winter's elements, but scientists were still able to determine that the hair was from a Caucasian man and was light brown or brown in color. Although Cox had light brown hair, there were a lot of brown-haired cadets out there, so this didn't necessarily point to Cox. Next, FBI scientists measured the size of the cap and found it to be a size six and three quarters. Suddenly, things started to get more intriguing. Cox was also a size six and three quarters. In light of this development, FBI officials called Minnie Cox and asked her if she happened to have any of Richard's old caps, which she did. The FBI collected Cox's hat and sent that to their lab in Washington for comparison. Unfortunately, this was where the momentum ended. The lab's results fell pretty solidly into the maybe category. FBI scientists did find some general similarities between the hairs in the two hats. But because the hairs in the first hat had begun to decompose in the snow, it was impossible to determine conclusively whether the two hair samples were a match. And although police canvassed the area in upstate New York where the cap was found, They couldn't find any other clothing or traces of Richard Cox. So ultimately, this was another exciting lead that ended up culminating in a frustrating dead end. But that wasn't the last lead that surfaced as the snow began to melt that spring of 1950. A couple of weeks later, police received reports of another tantalizing find. Are you getting any bites? Nothing. You? Nothing. 
told you it wasn't such a bright idea to go fishing in this cold. Technically, it's spring now. My pops always said that spring was prime fishing season. Oh yeah? Well, your pops was wrong, because I haven't gotten a single nibble all day. Maybe they're getting scared down the river because you won't stop talking. Oh yeah? Well, maybe they're scared of that. What? That over there, on the bank across the shore. It looks like it just washed up. You think that's a fish? Or a dead body. Shut up. I'm gonna go check it out. Oh gosh, Henry. What is it? Oh jeez. You better get over here quick. Will you just spit it out? What is it? Oh god, Henry. I think it is a body. Just like with a hat found in upstate New York, police were excited about this lead. Local police also found clothing that they believed belonged to the body along the side of the river, which had been naked when it was discovered. At first blush, the clothing looked like a cadet's uniform, which was what Cox was wearing on the night he disappeared from West Point. The shoes resembled Cox's shoes, and the pants had a black stripe that looked a lot like the black stripes on cadet uniforms. But upon closer examination, the black stripe on the pants actually ended up disproving that theory. It was wider than the black stripes on academy uniforms. Eventually, the body was identified as Charles Dwyer from Phillipsburg, New Jersey, and turned out to be another dead end in the Cox case. At this point, it had been more than two months since Cox had gone missing, and the police were getting desperate. There was still no trace of Cox to be found. Because they had so thoroughly scoured the land around the academy, police felt strongly that if they were going to find a body, that it must be in a body of water close to the West Point campus. This confidence was most apparent when in the final week of March 1950, police ordered Delafield Pond on the academy's campus to be drained. Delafield Pond was a popular cadet swimming area in the summer, but it would have been deserted in the winter and could have been an easy place for the killer to drop Cox's body. The pond was emptied only to find nothing. Cox's body had not been dumped there. Police then turned to other nearby bodies of water. This significant undertaking demonstrated the continued commitment to finding Richard Cox. Between April 3rd and 8th of 1950, Police searched the Lusk Reservoir, Long Pond, Round Pond, and Lake Popolopin. They employed an elaborate process using grappling hooks to thoroughly drag every square inch of these waters, but still all results came up negative. Once again, in the absence of physical evidence, Kavanaugh and Kaplan found themselves running down the same old path that they'd run before, investigating Richard Cox's personal life and exploring any cracks they could discover in his seemingly perfect facade. The pair had already spoken with all of Cox's friends and peers at West Point, as well as his family, friends, and fiancé from Mansfield, Ohio. But as time passed, the investigators came up with a new idea. Cox's civilian visitor, George, was supposedly someone who Cox knew in Germany. What if Cox's friends in Germany had some unique insight into what might have taken place the night Cox disappeared? The two investigators turned to the other soldiers who Cox served with in Germany, hoping that they might be able to shed some light on Cox or George or both. But to Kaplan and Kavanaugh's surprise, the portraits that Cox's fellow soldiers painted of Cox were strikingly contradictory. 
Yes, I remember Dick Cox. He was a dependable kind of guy. I didn't get too close to him. To be honest, I'm not sure anybody did. He was a bit of a loner. Richard was a partier. That guy loved to be around people. He was always out with the guys, always drinking a lot. He didn't drink a whole lot. And when he did, he really couldn't hold his liquor. He'd fall asleep, or sometimes even get terribly ill. Dick was a nice guy, but I'll tell you, you didn't want to be around him when he was drunk. He did a lot of drinking, and whenever he was drunk, he got into brawls. It was like he was a totally different person when he was under the influence. Richard always stayed out of trouble. He was proud of his reputation, and he always wanted to be considered a straight shooter. He was one of the kindest, most upstanding guys in our troop. Oh, he was a suspicious kind of guy. I never trusted him. Not for a minute. If you're wondering if Richard was capable of doing something duplicitous, the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. Kaplan and Kavanaugh had a hard time reconciling these dramatically different portrayals of Cadet Cox, particularly because his peers at West Point had all described him as a good student, a rule follower, and a genuinely nice guy. So, why the differing perceptions of him from his Army peers? Was it possible that Cox had a hidden dark side? Private James Daly, Cox's roommate in Germany, had a particularly problematic experience with Cox. In fact, Private Daly's experience with Cox was so negative that it led to a trial. Private James Daly, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. What was your experience with Cadet Richard Colvin Cox? I believe Cadet Cox stole from me. Can you please elaborate? During our training period, all the occupants of our room were in the field with the exception of Cox. However, during this period, the rear board of my wall locker was pulled out and four cartons of ships and stores were removed from it. Upon discovering the theft, I immediately notified the charge of our quarters, who reported it to the duty officer at the time. He made an immediate search of our room, and strangely enough... Four cartons of ship's store cigarettes were found in Private Cox's footlocker. And how can you be certain those weren't Private Cox's personal cigarettes? Well, oddly enough, the latter was out of cigarettes the previous evening. That evening, he asked me for money to buy cigarettes. And did you give it to him? I believe I gave him a package of cigarettes instead. I related this to the duty officer. And after this, I stayed clear of Cox, as I did not trust him. Although the trial was dismissed for inconclusive proof, this was a very different portrayal of Cox than the affable, charming gentleman his West Point friends had described him to be. Which led Kavanaugh and Kaplan to wonder, what if Cox had been hiding a dark side during his time at the Academy, and a secret past had caught up to him that cold January in 1950? In late April 1950, As they began to turn over the contrasting descriptions of Cadet Richard Cox, investigators Kavanaugh and Kaplan wondered if perhaps they had missed the writing on the wall that Cox had left West Point on his own volition. You may recall that Cox had written that letter to his fiancée, Betty, describing his frustration with the Academy. The letter revealed an angrier, more contemptuous side to his personality. But even if Cox had a hidden anger towards the Academy... It didn't sound like he was making any immediate plans to flee when he left for dinner on the evening of January 14th, which begged the question, what could his civilian visitor have possibly said that evening to change Cox's mind so dramatically? 
And even if Cox's visitor had convinced him to leave the academy, Cox still would have had to go somewhere. So if he wasn't at West Point, where could he possibly be? Unfortunately, although the tip lines continued to ring and Kaplan and Kavanaugh continued to chase down leads about Cox's whereabouts, nobody seemed able to account for the cadet. He had disappeared into thin air. Eventually, Cox's family and loved ones came to terms with his disappearance and accepted that he probably was dead. As the years passed, they moved on. By December of 1952, Cox's fiancée Betty Timmons had married a man named William Broad. Cox's family understood and supported Betty's choice. Although Cox's family believed that Richard had been murdered, instances of Cox sightings continued to surface. One such sighting took place in a diner outside of Washington, D.C. Richard? Is that you? Ernest Shotwell? Long time no see. Say, I thought you were over at West Point. Have you graduated already? Oh, no. I resigned last year. Good for you. What are you doing now? I'm going to work in Germany. In Germany, eh? Who for? For myself. Really? Well, now, that must be quite the position. Say, what are you doing over there? Oh, just this and that. Quite the cold we've been having this winter, isn't it? Yes, I suppose so. It's probably nothing compared to Germany, though. Yeah, I suppose so. But really, Dick, what are you up to all the way overseas? I'd love to explain, but it's getting late. I better be going. Nice to see you, Ernest. Ernest Shotwell had attended Stewart, a West Point preparatory school, with Cox in 1948. Although he had failed the physical portion of his exams and never attended West Point, Shotwell had served in the Coast Guard and was considered a credible witness. He'd attended school with Cox and therefore likely would have recognized him. Shotwell claimed that he ran into Cox in a diner in Washington, D.C. in the later months of 1952. But unfortunately, he hadn't realized that Cox was still missing, so he did not report this sighting until 1954, nearly two full years later. Nonetheless, FBI agents visited the restaurant where Shotwell had supposedly run into Cox. When they showed his photo to the cashier there, she said a man who resembled the missing cadet sometimes had breakfast there, usually between 8.30 and 9 a.m. Agents established surveillance on the restaurant but no further leads ever came of it. As the years passed, more speculations began to swirl about what could have happened to Cox. One theory suggested that Cox had become involved with the Soviets. This was the height of the Cold War, after all. Perhaps he had been kidnapped, or worse yet, perhaps he had abandoned West Point to turn over American secrets to the USSR. However, there really was very little evidence to support this theory, so it was most likely just idle speculation. Finally, in 1957, a full seven years after his initial disappearance, Cox was declared legally dead. And for many years, the Cox case remained cold. Until 1985, a full 35 years after he mysteriously went missing, when a dedicated investigator would breathe new life into this cold case. Coming up, we'll dive into the strange and mysterious theory that the investigator uncovered. And now, back to the story. 
1985, 35 years after Richard Cox went missing from West Point, the cold case got a little more interesting. Here we have our athletic facilities. We boast one of the top football teams in the country here at West Point. I appreciate the tour, but I'm actually looking for one particular building. Any chance you know which barracks Cadet Richard Cox stayed in? Richard Cox? Yes, the cadet who went missing back in 1950. I'd like to know where he was last seen. Marshall Jacobs was a history teacher who had always held a special fascination with West Point. And when he retired, he became especially interested in Richard Cox's case, particularly the fact that it had never been solved. Once Jacobs began to dive into the case, he followed a similar path to Kaplan and Kavanaugh. Jacobs went to interview Cox's dear friend, Bud Groner. Like he told Kaplan and Kavanaugh, Groner insisted that David Myron Westervelt was the key piece in solving the mystery of what had happened to Richard. Only this time, Groner shared a detail with Jacobs that he apparently hadn't mentioned to the two CID agents. I'm certain David Westervelt was responsible. Why? They never found Richard's body. Never even found a trace of him. Whether he's dead or alive, that's odd, don't you think? It's definitely strange. But how does that relate to David Westervelt? Obviously, it's hard to be sure. But conversations with Westervelt and other friends from Germany have led me to believe Westervelt was a recruiter for the CIA. Now that's a theory. Think about it. It makes sense. The CIA was just starting off in the 1950s, so it would have been recruiting pretty heavily. Especially ex-servicemen. Exactly. It's my theory that Westervelt showed up, took Dick to dinner, and appealed to the frustration any cadet would feel at West Point. I think Dick was extra susceptible to it in that moment. And so, for some reason, he decided to go with Westervelt. Any idea what that reason could be? Mm, it's hard to say. Dick was a thoughtful guy. Maybe the West Point ideology just didn't jive with him. Or maybe Westervelt's CIA pitch was just that convincing. I haven't worked out the exact reasoning behind it all. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Dick Cox left the Academy because he was recruited by the CIA. Unfortunately, Westervelt had passed away in 1969 at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. So Jacobs was unable to speak with him and question him directly. But Jacobs did what he could to unearth any new information about this theory. First, he ran the theory by Cox's family, who felt certain that it wasn't true. They did concede that Cox could be private, but none of them believed that Cox would be so private as to disappear without any indication to his loved ones that he would be leaving them forever. Next, Jacobs did some digging on Westervelt himself. We found that in his early 20s, Westervelt had worked with polygraph equipment, so Westervelt might have known exactly what to do to get a polygraph test to show up as inconclusive, which would effectively dismiss the test. Then, Jacobs went to speak with Westervelt's ex-wife, who Westervelt had been married to at the time of Cox's disappearance. Westervelt's wife explained that he was always very closed-mouthed about his work and had never told her what exactly it was that he was doing which to her had suggested that his employment involved some sort of CIA activity. Interestingly, Westervelt's wife's name was Alicia, which sounds a lot like Alice, the name that Cox had supposedly been calling in the staircase on the first night that he dined with his civilian visitor, 
George. Well, next, just for the sake of due diligence, Jacobs visited Westervelt's grave. Then he called the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York to verify Westervelt's date of death. Mount Sinai Hospital, how can I help you? Yes, hi there. I'm hoping you might help me locate a bit of information on one of your former patients. I'm trying to check on an old army buddy of mine. I heard he passed away in your hospital in 1969. His name was David Westervelt. Just one moment. Let me check on that. Hello? I'm here. I did find that record, but I believe you're misinformed. Our records say he was treated here in 1981. So it appears your friend didn't die in 1969 after all. Okay, so the plot was definitely thickening. Public records stated that Westervelt had died in 1969. So why did the hospital have it on record that he'd actually been around 12 full years later? Jacobs had the hospital verify Westervelt's middle initial and birth date, just in case. But sure enough, it was the same guy. And then, Marshall Jacobs got a letter from Mount Sinai Hospital that was truly suspicious. Dear Mr. Jacobs, I've investigated the matter regarding David Myron Westervelt's actual date of expiration. After reviewing Mr. Westervelt's medical record, it indicates that Mr. Westervelt expired at Mount Sinai Hospital in 1969. There was an error in our patient fiche, which has been corrected. My apologies for any inconvenience and confusion this may have caused you. Signed, Teresa McGregor, Director, Medical Records Department. Obviously, things were getting a little weird. Marshall called the hospital again, hoping for an explanation. But the person he spoke with reinforced that there had been a clerical error, nothing more. At this point, Marshall was hatching a new theory. It was far-fetched, but it also seemed like just maybe it could check out. Westervelt's ex-wife had confirmed that he had passed away in 1969, which indicated that whoever checked in under his name in 1981 hadn't been Westervelt. So what if Cox had returned to the United States from his work in Europe, fallen ill, and, unwilling to use his own identity, had secretly checked into the hospital in 1981 and been treated under Westervelt's name? Marshall reached out to a retired CIA officer, Walter Robinson, who was living nearby, to ask him if he could sit down with him and pick his brain. Robinson and Jacobs sat down, and Jacobs explained what he knew. Robinson told him he'd look further into it. Jacobs assumed he would never hear from Robinson again, but he was surprised when one day in 1986, his phone rang. Marshall Jacobs speaking. Hi, Marshall. It's Walter Robinson. It took some digging, but I found your man Cox. He's alive? Back up. Here's the deal. In the years after World War II, we had a bit of trouble with the Russians. So, we established special training schools for undercover or covert actions. You're saying Cox was one of them? Exactly. In Germany. He lived and worked in Europe. He was in the intelligence field. And he also may have served as a contact point in France. Doing what? One of his tasks was getting people out from behind the Iron Curtain. Mostly members of the scientific community. And I believe Cox's role in Europe may have involved doing something illegal which would explain the need to get him out of Europe and secretly back into the U.S. I believe his work was both significant and incredibly secret. Not so secret anymore, I gather. No, not so secret anymore. 
especially since Cox is now at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Terminal cancer, unfortunately. But he's alive. Is there a way I can contact him? Absolutely not. So what do I do now? Nothing. You do nothing. It's time to let it go. This is as much proof as you'll ever have. And as crazy as it might seem, Jacobs actually did let it go. I definitely wouldn't have. Well, me neither, but I think that Jacobs must have known that this was as far as he was going to get. As far as he was concerned, he had his answer. Richard Cox had left West Point with David Westervelt, who had convinced him to join the CIA. Then he worked in Europe until he reached a ripe old age. The way Jacobs laid it all out, this story does seem like the most plausible explanation for what happened to Richard Cox. But Jacobs' theory still left a couple of key questions unanswered. First of all, Westervelt was drinking heavily and even forcing Cox to drink, which isn't exactly the picture of a CIA recruitment pitch that we might imagine. Also, Cox was supposedly a rule follower. If that were the case, why didn't he wait to join the CIA until he had graduated from West Point, or at least until the end of the semester, when he could have dropped out more gracefully? Well, the drinking could have been a part of Westervelt's pitch. He was trying to loosen Cox up so that he'd agree. And there also was a lot of evidence that Cox was unhappy at West Point. He was disillusioned and looking for a way out. When Westervelt invited him for dinner and encouraged him to work for the CIA, it was exactly the escape that Cox was searching for. But what about the question of Cox's family? Cox was close with his mother and his sisters, not to mention that he had a fiancé. Would he really have up and left them without even an inkling of a goodbye? That makes me think he must have been murdered, because even if Cox had gone off with Westervelt, I do think he would have found a way to reach out to his family. If he was murdered, why didn't anyone find any traces of a body? Not to mention, Cox was in peak physical shape. If somebody had tried to harm him, they would have had to physically overtake him. And that probably wouldn't have happened without a struggle, but of course nobody ever found any signs of a struggle. To me, Jacob's explanation brings up just as many questions as it answers. But it does answer some very significant questions. For instance, Cox's former schoolmate insisted he ran into Cox in the diner in D.C. That's someone who actually would have recognized Cox. And it could have been possible that Cox was back in D.C. for some period of time, given the work that he was doing. Maybe the only person who could have answered these questions was Richard Cox himself. And who knows? It turns out that throughout decades of investigation, Cox may have been right under our noses the entire time. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. 
It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Zoe Broad and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Daniel Velasquez. <laughs>